Welcome to Consider the Constitution, the podcast that cuts through the noise and provides insight into constitutional issues that directly affect every American. Hosted by Dr. Katie Crawford Lackey and featuring interviews with constitutional scholars, policy and subject matter experts, heritage professionals, and legal practitioners, we examine the rights and responsibilities of citizenship. Consider the Constitution is brought to you by the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's Montpelier. Welcome back to Consider the Constitution. I'm your host, Dr. Katie Crawford Lackey, director of the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's Montpelier. I want to thank you for joining me on this podcast journey, which we embarked on as part of Constitution Month 2023. On this episode of the podcast, I want to pull out some of the themes from our guests. Thus far, we've been joined on the topic of the Bill of Rights by Dr. Lynn Uzell and on the First Amendment and the Right of Assembly by Jade Ryerson, on the original text of our founding document by Dr. Jay Cost, and on the topic of news media and democracy by Adam Belmar. An underlying theme referenced in each of the past four episodes is that of the balance between government authority and civil liberties. The delegates present at the Constitutional Convention of 1787 grappled with how to establish a functioning and enduring structure of government while also protecting rights of individuals. In Episode 1, Dr. Lynn Uzell explains why this was such a challenge to delegates at the convention. A right is a, a sort of lawful authority. It is what we can have a lawful claim to. and. When we're in the state of nature, we have a lawful claim to almost everything. As long as we don't trespass against the law of nature, as long as we don't trespass on other rights, we could do whatever we want. But when we get into civil society, when we form a political union, we give up the right to determine what our liberties are. That gets given up to the legislature. And that is a scary concept that the legislature, by passing laws, can start restricting that total freedom we had in the state of nature. The signing and eventual ratification of the U.S. Constitution established a social contract between the people and the government. Yet, when the delegates convened at the end of the summer of 1787, the founding document did not explicitly reference the rights of the people. All of those rights listed in the first ten amendments, or Bill of Rights, were not included in the original Constitution. In fact, James Madison didn't think it was necessary to list these rights. Dr. Lynn Uzell explains Madison's reasoning. So Madison can be described as someone who was against a Bill of Rights before he was for it. So when he was at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, he came out against a Bill of Rights. Patrick Henry said, we should not accept this Constitution, we shouldn't ratify it, unless it has a Bill of Rights. And Madison said a Bill of Rights was not only unnecessary, but even dangerous. Because if you add a Bill of Rights, you imply that Congress had powers that the Constitution never gave to it. When the Constitution left Philadelphia in 1787, it didn't have a Bill of Rights. Why was that? A lot of people can be astounded about that because a Bill of Rights has become the most important and for many people the most cherished part of the Constitution. And they have a hard time understanding why it ever could have seemed like a good idea to have a Constitution without one. Looking back today, we can appreciate the value of the Bill of Rights 
and see how it has shaped American society over the centuries. For example, Adam Belmar reminds us of the impact the freedom of the press, included in the First Amendment, has had on American society, both past and present. The news media was so important that it was codified in our Constitution, in the First Amendment. We know that the nature of learning in a disassociated country where we didn't have the connectivity that we have today, where newspapers informed small groups and radio stations as they came up reached only so far that the ability to share information brought people closer together. And the veracity of that information became incredibly important to consider the source of where it was coming from and the responsibilities of those who undertook to be journalists, to share both sides. And oftentimes there are more than two sides. And it became a part of our culture. And it has remained that way, even though it has proliferated into so many different things in so many different ways that we communicate here in the 2020s. But even if we were to roll back the clock 100 years to the roaring 1920s, news media, a form of media, was quintessential to being part of the civic fabric and understanding what was going on with those you didn't agree with or in places that maybe you'd never been but were also a part of this American experience. Freedom to peaceably assemble, another right included in the First Amendment, has also taken on new meaning over the past century. While we often associate this right with political protest, Jade Ryerson reminds us that other kinds of collective gatherings are also protected. So other examples would include labor strikes, political rallies, civil rights marches, you name it. And assembling this way is usually to demand some sort of change. Clearly, the Bill of Rights came to symbolize the American ideals of freedom and liberty. The addition of these 10 amendments also marked a major moment of political compromise a key ingredient in American democracy. Politics as compromise is one of the most evident themes of our consideration of the Constitution together. From Madison's perspective, politics is the venue by which social and economic disputes and conflicts are resolved and mutually satisfactory agreements arrived at. The Constitution provided a forum through which Americans would resolve their disputes and find common ground. To Madison, Political discussion and debate should not be adversarial. Rather, it should facilitate compromise. Dr. Jay Koss provides further insight on Madison's desire to compromise. He had intellectual reasons for wanting compromise. Um, His vision of how a republic is supposed to function, it gets down to that. And I like to tell my high school students that Abraham Lincoln offers the simplest and probably best definition of a republic is government of the people, by the people, for the people. But the challenge is, okay, of the people and by the people. So popular or sovereignty is vested in the people and exercised through their representatives. What happens, though, if it becomes of the people, by the people, but not for the people? In other words, how do we keep a democratic republic from becoming a democratic tyranny where the majority once seizing power, exercise it for their own benefit at the expense of the minority. So you can imagine an election 51-49, the result is the 51 get everything, the 49 have everything taken from them. In drafting the Constitution, the delegates were mindful that this new democratic republic needed to be sustained over the generations and not devolve into tyranny. So what then stops the people 
from forming a majority that takes everything for the majority and robs the minority. And the solution that he articulates is compromise and consensus. So that's the function of compromise. It's not just you and I have a disagreement about tax rates. You're at 20%. I'm at 10%. We'll meet at 15 and call it a day. It's that 15 is the number that you can live with and that I can live with, right? And so that 15 is the number in which you're not taking advantage of me and I'm not taking advantage of you. To continue with that, like splitting the difference is not just a way to solve the problem, but splitting the difference is the way to build out a coalition that is larger and includes more people, that's broader, that doesn't, is not just a geographical majority. Because we for, we tend to forget, I think, that place is very important in democratic politics, but it's also more considered. Like, we have to go back and forth and actually hash it out. And Madison appreciated that the bonds forged during the American Revolution might fray. And that, I think, more than anything else informs Madison's political theory, which is this idea of consensus. The larger, the broader, and the more durable a majority is, the less likely it's just the many robbing from the few the more likely it is that it actually reflects the national interest. And so the Constitution as a document is really designed to force Americans to find common ground, much as we just try to ignore that nowadays. Um, But that's its purpose. And that you can see often in his career, that's often what Madison is looking for. And so as Dr. Lanerzell reminds us, while not included in the original Constitution as it was signed in September 1787, the Bill of Rights was indeed necessary. The legislature may sometimes be separated from the will of the people. It doesn't usually happen in a republic, but it can happen. In that case, a Bill of Rights might be handy. The other reason he gives, I think, is one that's underestimated today. And that is that a Bill of Rights declares our understanding of what people, individuals deserve within the government. And When these rights are declared in this solemn way, it has an educative effect on the citizenry that it can actually control the impulse of passion, which is causing majorities to infringe on the rights of minorities. And I know that some of our listeners know Federalist Number 10 inside and out. And so they know that Madison is going to say that there is no cure, there's no remedy for the problem of faction, of the passions, the impulses of passion to make incursions onto the rights of minority. And he believes that, but he also believes that even if there's no remedy, there is a way of curbing that passion to make it weaker. And therefore, this is a way of making the majority less likely to infringe on the rights of the minority. Now, one of the things that I find so fascinating by this exchange between Madison and Jefferson is the reason that Madison left out of why a Bill of Rights is important. And that's the reason that Jefferson reminded him of. He said, I agree with your reasons for a Bill of Rights, but I want to add one more. And that is the role of the judiciary, that in a well-formed independent judiciary, they can hold up the rights of the people as against the powers of the legislature. And Madison did not disagree with that. In fact, when he proposed the Bill of Rights in the Congress, the first Congress, he gave that as a reason in its favor. But I do think it is very telling about the way that Madison thinks that he is more interested in the power of the majority 
and the way that the majority protects rights than he is about the role of the judiciary. So today, when we think about civic participation and civic virtues, this is an obligation citizens owe the state. And that balance is something we've considered across all of our episodes. This includes participating in democracy and understanding your rights. In discussing the right to peaceably assemble, for example, Jade Ryerson reminds us that this right wasn't often exercised in the decades after it was added to the Constitution in 1791. But it wasn't until the women's suffrage movement in the early 20th century that public protest was really introduced into the mainstream political consciousness. So I'm thinking specifically about the first ever White House protests staged by the National Women's Party during World War I. These women were advocating for a congressional women's suffrage amendment and began picketing at the White House fence in around Lafayette Park, which is just directly to the north. I think this is a really great example of democracy in action, because at this point in time, these women couldn't even vote, but were still able to exercise their rights of assembly and petition while literally being within earshot of the president. And there are a lot of reasons why these protests became really high profile. But one way or another, these activists began a tradition of White House protests that's continued into the 20th century. Being politically and civically informed is also an important part of citizenship. Adam Belmar explains. Our founding fathers understood that a free press was foundational to a thriving democracy. That fourth estate, as it's often called, is part of a checks and balances that we've heard scholars discuss on this podcast in previous episodes. But when you get beyond those who are classically trained in synthesizing issues and bringing consideration to a story with elegance, with intent to inform, you're suddenly drinking from that proverbial fire hose. And you don't really know what is the source of where all this information is coming from. So as we think about how do we find the truth, we have to assign value and credibility to the sources that we look at. That's, that's an issue for every generation. This democratic experiment has survived over the centuries because we as citizens believe in it, because people over the generations have sought to change it and make it better. To address the problems not solved in 1781, we continue to actively engage. As Dr. Jay Cost explains, By 1787, a democratic republic was not going very well in the United States at that time, so the fact that they were willing, in a sense, to kind of double down or like Madison's argument for why the Articles of Confederation had failed was basically like, well, we need to go bigger was sort of his response. State-based democratic republic is not what we need. We need a national one. We need to go bigger. That's, that's impressive. And I think that insofar as they were cutting against the prejudices and conventions of their day really is what sets them apart. And it's something I think we all aspire to, to sort of like be able to see right from wrong above and beyond what the conventions of the day are. But the reality is the respects in which they failed to do that, particularly on the issue of slavery. And again, not just on the issue of um, those who themselves were slaveholders, but there were Northerners as well who did own slaves that were willing to make a deal on this because in that regard, they were not beyond the prejudices of their day. They did not see beyond. They had a glimpse or an understanding that this was going to be a problem in the future, but uh, future generations will figure it out. And compromise was something that was core to James Madison's personal beliefs and also his vision for America, this new nation that was recently established. Coming up in our next episode of Consider the Constitution, we are joined by Dr. Lauren Bell for a fascinating exploration of America's federal judiciary 
as defined in Article 3 of the Constitution. Article 3 is incredibly short. It establishes one Supreme Court and such inferior courts as Congress shall ordain and create. It establishes that the Supreme Court will have two types of jurisdiction, original jurisdiction, which means that the court can hear a case for the first time, and appellate jurisdiction, which means that the court can hear cases that come to it from other courts below it. Beyond that, there is very little said about who will serve on the court, what their credentials ought to be. I hope you'll join us then as we continue to consider the Constitution.